Welcome to Real Personal Finance. I'm your host, Scott Frank, CFP, CFA charter holder, and founder of Stone Steps Financial. And I'm your host, James Canole, CFP, MBA, and owner of Root Financial Partners. The premise of our show is simple. Money can be confusing, but it doesn't have to be. Our goal is to answer real personal financial questions that we hear from our clients and our listeners. Each episode, we answer one personal financial question in a clear and understandable way. Because money is a tool. And when you understand the language of money, you can make better decisions to improve your financial life. Hey, James. Hey, Scott. Welcome back to another week. Yeah, thank you. Um, got another listener question today. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Why don't you read it today? Yeah. It's your turn. Can you explain more on how to calculate taxes as in the actual math to calculate your taxes on things like restricted stock units and employee stock purchase plans? Yes. We, we certainly can. We can, and taxes are confusing on those. They are. Um, it's, it's not like your salary where, hey, you're going to pay $100,000, you owe taxes on the whole amount. It's it's different. Yeah. Yeah, and there's um, there can also just be issues with the reporting that happens and making sure that it all reconciles properly and... It can be, it can be work. It can be work, and maybe a little bit of uh, just a disclaimer. There's going to be some maybe more, I don't want to say complicated, but more stuff to track because we kind of go through examples on this today. Yeah, we'll, we'll make it simple. We'll try to keep it as high, you know. Yeah, we'll but it's to- a different way of looking at it than you would look at income or a bonus or other types of things that you pay taxes on. Right. Yeah. So let's just, let's jump in. So the, the question was, how do you calculate taxes on things like RSUs, so restricted stock units and ESPPs? Let's just use an example of both. And let's start with RSUs. Yeah. You want to so give us an example? Why don't we start with the res- restricted stock units are. So a restricted stock unit is, um, it's basically like a, a phantom stock in a, in a, in a way. So like if, if, uh, James works for stone steps, um, maybe I'll grant him a thousand restricted stock units that'll vest over the next four years. Um, so, and I'm we're just going to make it simple. So it, it's what February now. So we'll say March 1st of next year. Um, he'll get 250 shares followed by March 1st of the following year, 250 shares and so on and so forth until they're all gone. And maybe if he's doing a great job, I'll come back next year and offer him a refresh of RSU to give him another tranche. Mm-hmm. And have some other vesting schedule as well in the future. So the first question is, because I just want to start, we'll get to the taxes, but um, James, for you, what, what are those RSUs worth to you um, today? If, if, I, if I give them to you today, let's just say they're worth $100 a share. It's just the, the guess, $25,000 in total. Well, today they're not worth anything because they haven't invested yet. Right. So it's, it's a future incentive of what, what, I, what they could be worth if I stick with Stone Steps and stay here and company does well. But today there's no value to them. Of course, it's going to do well. Of course, of course, of course. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I apologize. So, so, so no, but that that's an it's an important part, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you get this restricted stock unit. It is kind of a handcuff for you. It's this it's this incentive that's going to be based on for a lot of people the public, um, the stock price of the public company that you're with. And if it goes up in value, it's worth more. And if it goes down in value, it's worth less. And with a lot of people in, um, in tech companies over the last year with the the markets doing as well as they did, they actually have a lot of unvested um, 
kind of net worth sitting on their it's not on their balance sheet yet really because it's not really theirs yet but it's it's a sizable amount of money that potentially could be coming to them yeah and so part of it comes around how do you plan this right? yeah and how do you plan for the taxes of it which is something we're going to get at so okay so 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 that's what an rsu is and that's how, kind of how a vesting schedule works now let's just say march 1st of 2022 comes and goes mm-hmm. and you get 250 shares vested of stone step stock at a hundred dollars a share is what we're going to say it is which means when they vest they become mine yeah. i actually now have ownership of They're them actually yours so finally what happens on that day james how's that income treated for you those hundred share the the 250 shares vesting at a hundred dollars a share on march 1st of 2022 so whatever the value is of the shares that vest, that is all taxable income. So if I have 250 shares that vest on March 1st of next year, and it's $100 per share, that's $25,000. And it's it's almost as if I earned, it is as if I earned another $25,000 in terms of how it's going to be taxed. It's yeah. pretty straightforward. Whatever the value is, that stacks on top of your salary, your bonus, your other compensation. Uh, it's just taxable income to you. Yep. So for, for all intents and purposes, it's like, it's like we just stroked James a check for 25 grand. Um, but it was just in the form of, of restricted stock units. And then depending on how he decided to receive those, um, it could be that he wanted to sell all of them to cash in that moment. And that 25 grand is just converts to cash and we pay taxes. We're going to get to that a touch more in a second. He might have said, Hey, sell to cover. So I want to withhold a portion for taxes but let me keep the rest of my shares, mm-hmm. right? And then there's actually a, th- there's a third option that people don't do very often, which is, hey, I'm going to show up with cash to pay this tax bill on my own. I want to keep all those shares for myself, right? Right. So like you kind of have one of three options. Um, let's just say you choose the sell to cover option. Yeah. What actually happens here from a tax standpoint? So it hap- it's, it's, um, it's interesting because it's, it's like you paid me a $25,000 bonus in this example, but instead yeah. of giving me cash, where it'd be pretty straightforward. You had to have your payroll withholdings, federal taxes would be withheld, state taxes would be withheld, FICA, payroll taxes are withheld, and I am end up with the leftover amount, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Well, you're not actually giving me cash, you're giving me shares, but mm-hmm. I still have to pay taxes from those shares. Yep. So instead of coming out of pocket to pay those taxes, if I'm gonna sell to cover, what that means is enough shares that are vesting are gonna be sold so that those funds could be used to pay my tax withholdings, and I end up with the leftover shares. Yeah. So maybe 15000 20000 worth of shares left over instead of the full 25000 Yes, absolutely. So so the standard sale that happens with taxes, kind of the, the default that we see most often is sell to cover. And sell to cover basically means, hey, James is getting 250 shares on the first. We're going to take, let's just say, 100 of them off to the side to cover his tax bills that we're going to say he covers and he gets to keep 150. And now they get to go up and down with the market every single day. So this is actually what what, what the important part is. Um, what are the standard withholdings that happen on a sell to cover? So standard for federal is 22%. What does that mean? So it means that if you look at federal tax brackets, there's different thresholds, different income levels. You pay different amounts in taxes. So yeah. there's a there's a 22% tax bracket, and that's kind of the tax bracket that's used for federal. Yep. And so if I get $25,000 worth of shares vested to me, 22% of that is going to be withheld to pay for federal taxes. Mm-hmm. So that many shares are going to be sold to, mm-hmm. to cover that. Okay. Yep. On top of that, or did you have something? 
Go ahead. On top of that, you have state taxes, which is, of course, going to depend on the state that you live in, and then payroll taxes. So Social Security, Medicare taxes um, on top of federal and state. Yep. And so the the big key is 22% is the standard withholding for federal taxes. And here's why it matters. You need to go look at your own tax table, which remember we talked before about, I think we've talked before about how our tax system is a progressive tax system. Like everyone pays 10% and then goes to the 12% bucket and then the 22% bucket and then the 24 and then 32 and then 35 and then 37. Well, depending on how much income you have, if you're single, you have your own tax bracket. If you're married, finally, jointly, you have a tax bracket with your partner in life. And the question is, how much income, what marginal tax bracket do you end up in? Mm -hmm. Because if you are actually in the 35% tax bracket year over year, but RSUs are only being withheld for you at 22%, well, you're going to have a bit of a surprise when it comes tax time and it's time for you to pay. And guess what did you do with the other shares? Well, you may have just held those shares outright in your account and they're going up and down with the markets. Well, if they kept going up, cool, not, not a huge deal. If they tanked, now we're in a world of hurt, right? Because now we have to go sell shares that didn't do well, where we could have just sold them right away. So just be mindful of that. Yeah. Does that make sense? It, it makes sense to me, yeah. And so understanding what your overall tax bracket is, because just because they're withheld at one rate doesn't mean that's that the tax picture is done with at that point. Right. So the next thing is because you guys want to have a better understanding of like, where do we, how does this actually work? The, my question would be like, hey, where will I see these, you know, we talked about if we do sell the cover, they're going to withhold 22% and the, the federal taxes or pardon me, FICA taxes and state income taxes and all that stuff. Where am I going to see that happening? On your pay stub. Yeah. Yeah. Almost as if it was a bonus, but your bonus is in cash and is in stock instead of cash. Right. So you will see it there. And so realize that those withholdings happening in an RSU, you're, you're going to go see that there as well. Yeah. Now, Scott, what if I do this? So you, I get, uh, $25,000 worth of shares of Stone Steps Financial. Some of that's just withheld in tax. What if I keep those shares? Does does the growth on those get taxed as ordinary income as well? How do I how do I think about that? Yep, the answer is it depends. If if James holds it for until um September 1st of the fall, pardon me, March, March 1st. 1st of the <laughs> following year, his gain or loss would then be a long-term capital gain because if hit one year term capital loss yep if you hold it for less than a year it's a short-term gain or loss which would be treated like ordinary income tax rates yeah so think of it literally as you got a bonus and you use that bonus to go invest in stock right so your that bonus was fully taxable and then at at ordinary income rates and then whatever growth on that happens if it's long-term growth it's taxed at long-term capital gains rates which Mm -hmm. are going to be 15 percent to 20 percent depending on your tax bracket, maybe even 0% if you're in a much lower tax bracket, uh, but it's not the same tax bracket as ordinary income. Correct. And, and to your point, that's actually one of the questions it's always good to think for yourself. If, you know, from James's perspective, the question would be like, hey, if Stone Steps is going to give me a check for 25 grand, am I going to go buy Stone Steps stock with that money after taxes? And if the answer to that is no, if I'd rather be doing other things with my money, well then sell those funds once you're able to, whether you have, you may have an open window that you have to go wait for the open window to be open to go trade. You may be able to simply elect, change your grant to sell all to cash. Yeah. Right. So it just automatically does it for you. And then you don't have to worry about it. Right. 
Right. Because it's, uh, you almost, if, if I don't sell right away, let's say I get the 25,000 vesting and I'm busy and I don't check it and six months go by and all of a sudden stone step stock is worth higher. It's a higher amount. Well, now I'm kind of in a tricky position because I don't want to sell it then because I want to pay short-term capital gains. But if I wait too long and the stock falls, I could more than lose whatever the increased short-term capital gains rate would be. So you kind of put yourself in a tough bind if you don't do something right away. So good to have a plan. Good. It's good to have a plan for all stock compensation to know what you want to do with it and why, and then have that plan and stick to it. Yes, definitely. So that's RSEOs. Yep. What about ESPPs? Yeah. So employee stock purchase plan is a plan that allows, um, employees to buy stock at a discounted rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that so far. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, the, I think the, um, and there's a, there's typically a, for how much you're allowed to buy each year, I believe the max is $25,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And then there's oftentimes a percentage amount of your income that'll be capped as well for your business. So it's either 25 or the percentage. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yes. Yeah. The lesser of the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think the big, question for why you want to do ESPP. Different people can do it for different reasons. Some people may want to buy into the company and own a percentage of the company for the longer term. That could be a nice, ESPP can be a good way to to get some shares if that's what you want. Um, One thing that we'll often see uh, advisors discuss with people is that you can, there's a touch of a tax arbitrage you can do here if you Mm -hmm. have the free cash flow. So if I know I can get a 15% discount on $25,000 of my money and I can go turn around and sell the shares once they're available and I have to make sure that your plan allows for it, right. you can kind of give yourself a little bonus um, without really taking a whole lot of risk, right? Yeah, yeah. I can just, I'm going to defer in my paycheck all the money to go make these purchases and the moment I make that purchase, I'm just going to turn around and sell it. So how do I, what do you mean by that? I get a guaranteed return on investment. How does that actually work out? Is the plan just gives me money or how does that return happen? So the, the purchase is a 15% discount and the discount could be dependent upon, it could just be based on the purchase price the moment it's available. Oftentimes these will be designed so they'll say, hey, look, we're going to look at um, the offer period price, the price available when the period starts and then the, when the period ends and we're going to look at, we're going to give you a 50% discount on the lower of the two. Right. right? So imagine that like, just pretend that you have a, a $10 stock or a, well, let's make it easy. Let's make it a $1,500 stock or a $200 stock because I'm going to use percentages on it pretty easily, right? Mm-hmm. So at the beginning of the period, it's worth 100 At the end of the period, it's worth 200 right? And I say, hey, you get a 15% discount on the lower of those two prices. Yep. Well, then automatically the lower price was 100 and we get a 15% discount. So we get to go buy it for 85 and it's immediately worth two hundred. So immediately, in this example, it's crazy money. It's immediately yes. two hundred. That's not I'll take be that normal. all day. Yeah, but but so you, basically, you get to go buy at the eighty five with the amount that you have, and then the difference between the two thereafter, you can go sell, and that's just ordinary income to you, right? When that happens. Yes, yeah. and that's nice because you're not going to get many guarantees, but that's a guarantee. Now, assuming you can assuming sell it that you, day. Correct. The key is you got to make sure that there's not like a one-year holding period on your funds or something like that. But if there's not, if they're free to do whatever you want, you know, trading periods are open when these things happen, um, you can kind of pick up a little extra income throughout your year on an ESPP if you want. Definitely. And yeah. so the nice thing about the ESPP is you can get that guaranteed income if your plan allows for you to sell right away. 
And then I think you mentioned that the the difference there between what you purchase the stock for and what it is actually exercised for, that's taxed to ordinary income, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. And now there's qualifying dispositions, disqualifying dispositions. It gets real confusing real quick. It gets so really let's do convoluted really fast. So whenever with with ESPP plans, there's this rule for what's called the simple thing is if you want the best tax treatment you can get, and I'm not saying you want that because some people actually like just going and give me the discount. I'm going to sell it, kid, and I'm going to take that little extra off the top. That can be a nice way to have a little bit of extra income. Yep. That'd be one reason to hold it. Another reason to hold it could be, hey, I like that idea, but I want to do what's, I want to qualify for what's called a qualified disposition. Yeah. A qualified disposition happens when you're two years past the original offer date of whatever the period you entered in and one year past the the purchase date. Yep. So there's two things you have to hit there, right? Mm -hmm. And if you hit both of those, then you get um, a preferential tax treatment. So the where in our example where we bought at eighty five and the, the offer date price was a hundred, that fifteen dollar difference will always be ordinary income whenever you go sell the shares has yep. to be. But that other difference, the the hundred to the two hundred, um, once you hit the long term capital gain and all those things, that's all considered long term capital gain for you. You yeah. don't have to worry about paying um, short term rates on that or ordinary income rates on that. Yeah, there's way more nuanced ESPP than that um, than we can really do on on a podcast. Um, but I think those are good overarching ideas. I think so too. Without it, it gets very confusing, but I think the, at the end of the day, what you're trying to see for when you're asking yourself the question, how much do I actually owe in taxes? What you want to know is how much of that your proceed is going to be considered ordinary income and how much of your proceeds are going to be considered capital gains. Yep. And depending on if it's a qualified disposition, a disqualified disposition, that will change. So that's something that you do need to be mindful of. But once you know how much is ordinary income, so in, in our example, for the, with the qualifying disposition, that difference between $85 and $100, yep. that ordinary income is going to stack on top of your salary or bonus or whatever else you had. Right. So if your salary and bonus you left you at $100,000 of combined income, and in this example, there's ten thousand dollars of extra well that that difference from ten to a hundred a hundred thousand to hundred ten thousand it's as if you earned an extra ten thousand dollars now the capital gains on top of that that's going to be treated as well capital gains and so you're going to pay taxes at the capital gains tax rate so it's a it gets confusing but if you can separate the two and then kind of stack them on top of your other income that's how you're essentially going to determine what amount you owe in taxes Right. And I'm already confusing myself with this, so I know it's got to be confusing with listeners, but does that make sense? It does. I mean, at the end of the day, I think for ESPP, the taxes are, are difficult. The one thing I would say about like whenever you're looking at consolidating funds and, and, and like moving, maybe simplifying your financial life, when if you go look at your balance, you can have a bunch of things in different places. If you have ESPP shares that you earned at a you know, if, if you were working, if, if James was working at Stone Steps and ESPP program at Stone Steps was through Fidelity and now his assets are at Schwab, it behooves him to just keep his ESPP shares at Fidelity because all the tracking and all the back end that happened with it is already there. So it's easier to keep it all correct when you actually go do sales right. than it is to go move it over somewhere else. And now you don't necessarily have all your detail stuff there. Right. So that the reason I'm bringing that up is just from a compliance, like when you have to deal with tax compliance, you want to try to make it as easy as possible, even though this is not an easy thing. And then the other thing is just know for ESPP, know what, what your purpose is. If your purpose is 
I want to just get that extra, that discounted percent back to me, no matter what. Yeah. Well, that's all you're always going to be looking for a disqualified disposition. And you're just going to be looking to roll them off the moment they're available to you. Yeah. Right. And then if you want to get more, uh, longer term than that and try to build in some long-term capital gain and go for qualified dispositions, just know it gets way more, can get way more complex. There's a small tax benefit. I don't want to say small. There, there's more of a tax benefit for the qualified disposition, but yes, it is more complex. The more... And you're exposing yourself to single stock risk. Yeah, there's a concentration right. risk of if your stock yeah. falls by more than 10%, well, that kind of wipes out whatever tax benefit you had of holding it for a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. So... What a lot of people do, what we see a lot of people doing is that disqualifying disposition where with the ESPP, they say, I don't care about the long-term top capital gain tax treatment. I just want to sell right away to take to lock in that guaranteed return on investment. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be all taxed to ordinary income yep. when they're doing that. And the so. issue you run into is every once in a while, you'll run across a plan that will say like, hey, you can participate, but you have to hold shares for X period of time. Yeah. And then you don't really get to do what a lot of people are trying to do as you're explaining. Then they're, you're you're kind of sitting there. And then you kind of have to ask yourself, well, is it worth it for me to do this from a qualified disposition standpoint as well? Yeah. Which all comes back to how much assets do you have all over the place and what are all of your needs and how much are you putting at risk? Right. Then you can make the choice that's right for you. Right. Right, right. Well, anything else that should be, obviously we could go on for a long, long time about tax treatment of this because it can get very detailed. But is there anything else from a high level that you think we should add to this? No, I think that's the big thing. I I mean, I think like for, for everyone, it's important to know just what your marginal tax rate is, meaning for the next dollar that you earn, um, what do you have to pay in state taxes and what do you pay for federal taxes? Um, it's just always a good thing to know. And then also just know what your effective tax rate is. Yeah. Those are two things that are good to know from a tax perspective. Yeah, definitely. And, and we didn't talk about non-qualified stock options or incentive stock options with this because I think there's enough detail just for these two, yeah. two types. Um, similar approach, it can be a mix of ordinary income and capital gains that you'll end up paying taxes on. But for today's episode, we're just going to keep it to RSUs and ESPPs. Yes. All right. Well, thanks, Scott. Thank you you for listening to another episode of the Real Personal Finance Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a five-star review. And if you have a question that you'd like for us to answer, then head over to the Real Personal Finance website at realpersonalfinance.co. There's a section on the bottom of each page there where you can submit your question for us to answer in a future episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for a basis for investment decision. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, or other professional services.